What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers Podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions, both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. If you've been enjoying the podcast and you want an easy way to support it, you should leave a review on Apple Podcasts. The easiest way to do that if you're on a Mac is to go to ndhackers.com slash review. Today, I'm talking to Nathan Latka. Nathan's a polarizing figure to say the least, and he's a really tough guy to describe. He runs multiple businesses that have done millions in revenue. And I think I would describe him as an indie hacker with an emphasis on the word hacker. It always feels like Nathan is hacking systems to figure out how to get things cheaper, faster, easier, and more exclusively than he really has any right to do. And it's fascinating just looking at the way that Nathan approaches problems because he just figures out how to get the most bang for his buck in pretty much every situation. Nathan is also a strong believer in media first, distribution first. He believes you should build out an audience and build out a channel to reach that audience before you build your product. I think there's a lot to learn from his approach, so enjoy Nathan's story. You've got a lot going on right now. You've got a podcast with millions of downloads. You've got a magazine that you're publishing. You've got your subscription business, FounderPath, and a bunch of other products that you've released in the past. And you've made a ton of money doing all this stuff and generated your fair share of controversy at the same time. So I guess right from the top, why, why do any of this? Why not just go get a normal job somewhere like a normal person? I would just be very bored, I think, right? I mean, my first job was at Target during high school. I would work as much as I can over the weekends. And I just remember I'd get so bored. So my supervisor came over and said, Nathan, one of the things that I really need to do and our boss is pushing down on us is we need to sell more Target credit cards. So if you can start figuring out ways to upsell these Target credit cards when people are checking out like their candy and their gum and their milk, that's something fun for you to do. But I still even got bored with that. So the the answer to that question is I really enjoy deconstructing how things work, then trying to replicate it, then trying to improve it. And with that improvement, typically comes opportunities to generate cash and build a real business. How much does the generating cash factor into the motivation side of things? I mean, if you get a normal job, there's usually an upside to how much money you can make. As an entrepreneur, there really is no upside. Sky's the limit. How much does that factor into your motivation? Well, I mean, sometimes I'll sit down, like you read these posts on Bezos right now on Twitter about, you know, he's making a billion per minute, which is like divided by X equals like 7,000 million years on earth that no one will ever catch up with him. And, you know, the money question to me, it just truly is a measuring stick. I mean, I think as a founder, and this is what I try to get at when I interview my founders on my podcast too, is I try and decode their first big cash moment in life, right? So for me, Many people think my first big cash moment in life was in 2015 when I sold Hayo. And what most people don't realize is I sold Hayo for a loss. I mean, we had raised two and a half million bucks. The company hit, you know, we did five million in total sales over four and a half, five years. The highest run rate we ever reached was about one and a half million. We had, and this is on page 243 in my book, I just put the LOI in there from eye contact. When I was 21, they offered to buy the company for 7.5 million bucks, Cortland. And I thought I was the crap. I thought I was a stud. I still do, by the way, but maybe it's a little toned down now. But I, I said no. And our board said no because I'd raised VC. They wanted me to go for a billion dollar exit. And that was one of the biggest mistakes of my life. So the point is, we sold for way less than 7.5 million in 2016. I didn't make money on that. My actually first big cash moment was the salary I paid myself from my dorm room 
both pre-raising capital. So we grew to about 60 grand a month in revenue before we raised capital. And I was making and paying myself like 10, 15 grand a month in a dorm room as a college kid. I mean, and so I saved up a ton of money. And so my early cash moment was actually an accumulation of salary over three to four years between ages 19 and 24, where my expenses were very low relative to the salary I paid myself for my own company. And so bringing back that, that all back to your question about like what's enough money for me, it's, it's really truly a measuring stick and I'm very competitive. So it's points for me. Well, right now you've got I think at least three major sources of revenue. Your podcast, which I mentioned, your subscription database, and now Founder Path. Which one of those is making the most money? Let me sort of break down how we make money on all those things, right? So in order, like sequential. So 2015, I sold Heyo.com. That was my first SaaS company, right? Understood, learned everything about SaaS there. I then launched the podcast in 2015. I didn't know what to name it, so I Google searched the word, you know, you ever use Keyword Explorer, Portland? Yeah. So back in 2015, I typed in podcast just to see what the most searched term related to podcasts was. And it was, what's the top podcast? So I said, heck, I'll just name my podcast the top podcast <laughs> and get all this free SEO juice. So that's what we named the podcast. And quickly what happened was I had people asking to sponsor. I just put the email in the meta description on iTunes and people would start reaching out, but it was like nothing. It was like a hundred bucks an episode. I'm like, this is not even worth recording 60 second mid roll. And what I realized is a lot of these sponsors reaching out, asking to sponsor would anchor to CPM, which is essentially cost per thousand downloads. And I realized you would have to, to make a million dollars via a podcast. You would have to have serial like numbers, 40, 50, hundred million dollars a year if you were going to place on a CPM model. So what I started doing is when sponsors reached out, I said, what is your current CAC customer acquisition costs on other channels you're spending money on? And then I told them if I thought I could beat it or not. So I anchored to what their CAC was and their other channels versus CPM. And that's how we grew the podcast where, you know, last year I'm trying to remember what my tax folks sent me. But I mean, last year we did over $700,000 in sponsor revenue directly from the podcast. Our largest sponsor pays six figures a year and all sponsors start out on our test, which is $5,000 a month for a three month test. So 15 grand paid up front. And if that goes well, they typically then extend to a year. So that's how the podcast started. I'll pause there before I go into the other two revenue streams. I think, first of all, it's a pretty fascinating transition to go from having this venture-funded business that you know, you're in talks to sell for millions of dollars, and then after that's done, decide to start a podcast, especially knowing the podcast didn't really make that much money on a CPM basis, at least, and you'd have to innovate. And it probably wasn't obvious to you right at the beginning, okay, how am I going to make this make a ton of money? Why go into the media industry? Why start a podcast instead of starting another SaaS company? My bigger belief back in 2015 was that distribution was more important than product. And so when I was growing Heyo as founder, one of the things I spent so much time on was trying to convince people with distribution channels to talk about Heyo, whether that was convincing a big blog that wrote a post about the space to put our link in the top header so we get backlinks or convincing an affiliate that a 30% cut during first year revenue was better than you know 10% in perpetuity or like scanning YouTube, I would type in the word webinar plus the competitor name and it, and then all the webinar recordings they did with other affiliate partners would show up on YouTube. And then I would go hunt all those other, like hunt them to do a, a thing with me. And it would take so much effort. And so I realized, wow, the real power here is not necessarily building a software company, but it's building a media business that locks down distribution in the industry you want to own. And I knew that long back in 2015, I knew that long-term I wanted to play in the B2B SaaS space. So I said, I'm going to go build a distribution channel in this space. And I happen to choose podcasting to do that. 
This is something that a lot of first-time founders end up learning is that even if you build a product and that product's great, it doesn't matter if nobody can find it. And so you have to kind of go to where the people are and that usually means going to other distribution channels owned by other companies. You know, trying to get to the top of the App Store rankings or the top of the Google rankings or trying to get the press to write about you or trying to show up on Facebook ads or something. And that's just like a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of effort spent basically begging other people to feature you on their distribution channels. So then your second at bat, you're like, screw that. I'm going to build my own audience, my own channel, my own podcast or newsletter or whatever it is. And then I don't have to beg anybody else to let me get in front of their audience because I already have my own. What was your long-term plan for your podcast? How did you plan to actually grow this thing and turn it into a distribution channel that you could use? All of the people that I knew in podcasting in 2015 that had top shows, there wasn't anything magical about their shows other than they launched in like 2006. They had been doing the same thing the longest, most consistently. So I knew launching, I had to figure out, Nathan, can I do this thing for a long period of time, extremely consistently and at a high quality? And the only way that I could say yes to that was to make sure I could produce each episode as cheaply as possible so that even if nobody listened and I had no revenue, I could afford to make it keep going for as long as possible, right? And that's Mm. what would ultimately help us generate revenue. So I was prepared to do 100 to 300 episodes, even if like five people downloaded each episode. Yeah, we talked about this uh, a few weeks back. And the advice I give to everybody who asks me, what should I do if I start a podcast is don't quit. (laughs) No matter what you do, prepare to keep going. You're going to want to quit after the first four or five episodes when it's hard to produce an episode and it's hard to find guests and you don't have that many downloads. But when I started Indie Hackers, I put like a triple digit sort of episode number before every episode. So the first episode was 001. So I knew I had to go at least until 100 episodes. Otherwise, I would look dumb. And I think it's you hit the nail on the head. Like people with successful podcasts often just have the longest running podcast. They never quit. That's exactly right. Well, I mean, look at you right now and look at me, right? It's everyone's locked down. We've changed locations. A lot of people think they can't get into podcasting until they spend like 10 grand building a fancy studio. But like when you add up all my equipment that I have right now, it's probably like 80 bucks. And what's most important is it all fits in my backpack. So I never have an excuse not to record because I can take my studio with me. You've done the same thing. What is your equipment? You have your headphones, you have the mic, what else? Yeah, I've got my headphones, my mic, I've got an audio interface, and it all fits my backpack. And I just don't see any point in building up this huge wall of things that you need before you get started. I could go out camping right now and tether from my phone and record this podcast episode. And where you have to tell everyone where you are right now. It's super cool what you're doing. Yeah, I'm in Mount Shasta at the moment. I'm probably going to be in a different place for every podcast episode I record for for the foreseeable future. I'm doing sort of an indefinite road trip. And I've just been driving around California for a while, just making sort of last minute stops to see where I want to stay. It's all been incredibly beautiful, Mount Shasta in particular. And this whole trip, I've just been thinking about just how much COVID-19 has changed things, like seeing the, the different ways that that cities are open right now, all the things that are closed, what people are doing, and just my own trip and other people making similar trips. It's crazy. I mean, like even big technological shifts like computing, like how much has the world really changed as a result of us having computers? Well, it's changed a lot, but like it hasn't really changed how people move around in the world. It hasn't really changed the layout of our cities and and our suburbs. But I think if COVID sticks around long enough, which it looks like it might, that's actually going to have a big change. And it's going to force us to fully embrace some of the technology that we've had that we haven't really fully embraced. Like most companies could have been fully remote for years now, and yet they just aren't. And now suddenly they are, not because we have new technology, but just because we've had a shift in social norms because of this disease. So I'm really enjoying traveling. I think most indie hackers who have the ability should try changing it up a little bit rather than just sitting at home 
in one place. It's important. I mean, I, I think I have a bit of an edge and I, I forget your situation, but I know you don't, I don't think you have kids and I don't think you're married and I don't think you're no. dating right now. But like I'm completely unbounded. Yeah. So we have a bit of an advantage. So there might be listeners listening right now that are mar- like married with like two kids, right? A little bit different situation, but still sort of same concept. I mean, I remember when this all started, I was reviewing our month closeout and I was paying Verizon like 300 bucks a month for my phone plus Wi-Fi. I'm like, this is ridiculous. So I switched to Google Fi, which is 70 bucks a month. And I have the same I'm, thing. Yeah. It's like, Cortland, this is incredible. So I'm here at this house in LA with four other tech executives. They're all complaining the first two days that the, the Ethernet Wi-Fi is not strong enough. We were only getting like, what was it? We were getting like uh, 300 megabits down, but up is really what matters. We were only getting like three or four up and they're complaining. And I turn on my Google Fi and I'm getting like 15 up. It was like high speed. I mean, I'm shooting high quality YouTube lives on my Google Fi thing, which is like, wow, I could be in the middle of the woods and still run my own, my whole business now. And they give you so much data too. Like I've been free. getting notifications from them. Yeah, just it's free up to a certain point. They're like, oh, you hit your six gigabyte limit. Everything here is free until you get to like a hundred or something, and then we'll start throttling you. But I'm not going to get there every month. So it's incredible. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, we've got the technology to do, it, and I think the lifestyle is pretty good. How much does that factor into your decision to be sort of an indie hacker? I mean, if you're lifestyle, yeah, the ability to choose basically when and where you work. When you sort of define what it means to be rich, rich is sort of like. You can buy whatever you want. You know, wealth to me is more interesting, which I sort of have defined for myself as being able to do whatever I want, whenever I want to do it. And by nature to do that, you have to, you have to be an indie hacker. I mean, you have to have your own stuff going on because you can't answer to a boss where you have to check into Slack at 8 a.m. every day. What if you're camping in the middle of the Sequoia forest and you just on your little Coleman camp stove made coffee and it's 7.55. You don't want to have to like fix your hair and do shit and pop up your computer to like make that Slack call that kick off the day, right? So you have to be an indie hacker if you want to be wealthy, in my opinion. Yeah, I think I agree. I think wealth comes a lot from freedom. Like you said, the power to do what you want to do when you want to do it. And it's really hard to have freedom if you're not taking control of your life into your own hands. But on the flip side, there's a lot of risk. Like there was just a post on Indie Hackers yesterday about basically just like a small hit rate. If you go to the Indie Hackers product directory and you sort by the number of solo founders who have never hired an employee in their life, who are making at least 10 grand a month in revenue, it's like 50 people. And of course, most people have not uploaded yep. their product to Andy Hackers. It's orders of math. I've had more than that on the podcast. But out of the thousands you've tried, like the numbers seem pretty small. Why aren't you dissuaded by the chances of failure? You know, why are you dissuaded by the idea that you might just fail and not make as much money as you would otherwise? I just, I mean, one of the things that I care very little about, and this sort of also goes into how I deal with and work with in some cases, sometimes it's friendly, sometimes it's not so friendly to the press, is I just know it's a numbers game. Like as long as you've got the sort of genes to not be scared to like swing, 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 it's just a matter of time before you hit sort of that one thing that really works. And you only, I mean, you could have 99 things not work and one thing work really well and that's all you need. Everyone forgets about the things that don't work. I mean, does anyone talk about the the Amazon Fire Phone anymore? that failed miserably? No, we're talking about how Bezos is making like a billion dollars a day. So I think the answer to that question directly, it's, it's, I am confident in my ability to keep swinging, which means I don't get dissuaded by the chances of failure because I know one day I will hit. It's just a matter of time. Yeah, and I think that point is so underrated because if you really understand that 
and you're really willing to put in the reps and just keep taking swings, then you'll work to, I think, create a lifestyle and an environment that allows you to keep taking swings, right? If that means living more cheaply so that you can start your next project, if that means even having slightly less ambitious projects that aren't going to take three years to build, but you can get them out the door and see if they succeed or fail in a couple months. I think that's really one of the keys to being able to succeed. And most of the people that I talked to like did not you know, hit a home run on their first at bat. It took me six, seven years of building startups before I started Indie Hackers. I had DHH on here the other day talking about work-life balance. And 37 Signals as a company existed for five years before they launched Basecamp. And there's so much said about how easy it was in the launch base camp and how much you know somebody successful can understand the plight of somebody who's not. But how many people were really putting five, six years into it? How many people were just expecting to succeed after one or two years and then complaining that they haven't? It's a lot. And that's why I appreciate what you're building, right? A lot of the mainstream press where they have to generate clicks, more people will click a headline that says base camp goes from zero to five million in one year. I mean, look at all the people posting their ink listings right now. Right? I mean, this is like clickbait 101 stuff. It's way less sexy to say, you know, Basecamp start off as an agency, barely made payroll first year. Five years later, finally launched their first tech product, which is three years late, by the way. Right. And it announced a success. It's just it's less sexy to talk about the marathon sprints and quick success always get more clicks because that's what people want, but it's not how it's actually done usually. So again, that's why I appreciate things, you know, folks like you who really shine a light on the marathons, not just the sprints. It's pretty fascinating how badly everybody wants that quick story though. Like they'll say they don't, they say, oh no, I want the more realistic picture, but you put the realistic picture out there and everybody ignores it and everybody focuses on the quick success. Like somebody can literally say, it took me seven years to succeed and I did all this stuff and then I finally got there. And then people will be like, wow, you got there so fast. You know, how can I succeed in the next six months? And it's like, wait, that's not what I said. I said it took me seven years to do all this other stuff and build an email list and pick up all the skills. And I failed a bunch of times. But no matter what you write, like people really crave that fast success. And I think it's unfortunate. I think it's much better to take a lot of at bats, to take your time, to realize, as you said, it's a marathon, not a sprint, and to enjoy the actual process of starting a business instead of trying to rush to the finish line as fast as you possibly can. And I would underscore Carl and say, I think the, the main reason people don't do that is the first point you brought up. It's keeping your baseline expenses low so that you have very, so it's easy to pick up the bat and swing again. Most people spend way more than what they should be spending. And so I would just encourage everyone to focus like one Sunday a month on decreasing your expenses. That's almost I think probably 10 times more powerful than spending spending that same day on how to drive. 10 grand a month in new sales. The tricky thing when it comes to expenditures is that it's so easy to go in kind of the upward direction, but it's hard to downgrade. It's really easy to improve your quality of life, to start eating out more, eat nicer food, or move into a better, bigger apartment. But when you think about downgrading, it just seems so painful. But the thing is that you just acclimate. It's like getting a shot. You know, it hurts at first, and so you don't want to get one, but then you do, and you're like, oh, it wasn't so bad, and you just adjust to the new normal. So I think that's great advice. What was your financial situation like after you sold your company, Heyo? You said you sold it for a loss and you started your podcast. How much money did you have in the bank? Yeah, I mean, I started and I actually, I'm, I'm looking this up as you're asking me the question. I started keeping track of like my net worth just because I figured one day when I'm 50, if I want to give a, you know, someone writing a bio on me or something like my history, this document will be really valuable. Um, and so I'm just opening it right now and scrolling down to see how much history I have. Yeah. Okay. So I have October 29th of 2015, which is right after I sold Heyo. 
uh, and launch the podcast. So I'm scrolling over to my net worth column. Yeah, so I had, in terms of how I calculated my net worth, about 100,000 bucks. So I was 25 at the time, right? And then, you know, scale up. Yes, the podcast is what took me past a million. But, you know, I measure two things. I measure net worth and I measure cash in under seven days. So if I wanted cash quickly, how much cash could I pull in under seven days? And now those numbers put together are obviously are, are much larger than a million dollars. And the podcast is really what got me there. So let's talk about growing the podcast and, and helping you get there. Because as we mentioned, most podcasts don't make very much money. And you were able to sort of figure out this hack where instead of selling ads on a CPM basis based on how many people listen to your podcast, you would sell ads based on a CAC basis, based on how expensive it was for your sponsors to acquire customers through other channels. You would try to basically match that or beat that on your podcast. Exactly. So if, for example, I don't know, ConvertKit came to you and said, hey, Nathan, you know, we usually spend $100 a year to acquire a customer. You might say, well, listen, I'm going to get you customers for $90, right? So pay me you know, $20,000 to sponsor my podcast, and I'm going to get you whatever that is divided by 90, that number of customers. 200 and 230 customers. Exactly. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and so... And what that also did is I would put that calculation in the SOW, the statement of work that we signed for the sponsorship. I'd put that in there. I'd say, convert kit's expectation for this $15,000 spend, because it'd be five grand for three months paid up front. So for 15 grand, their CAC on their other channels are about $100 to get a new customer. If Nathan can bring in X amount of customers, right, it is clearly outperforming other channels, which means it's very obvious Everybody knows there's no ambiguity. It's very obvious if ConvertKid would renew that sponsorship for a full year. I either beat the number or I didn't beat the number. There's no ambiguity. So that allowed me to really focus on getting the amount of customers I needed into those sponsors so that they could renew. And how exactly did you go about beating those numbers? Um, a couple things. Look, I think one of the big secrets in podcast advertising is people always assume that mid-rolls are like they're either profitable or not. You know, for me, what I do is I tell my sponsors... Yes, this is for podcast placement. But if I know I need to bring you 100 customers in a month and I'm only at 86 and there's a week left in the month, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to put you on our blog. I'm going to email you to our list. like, And I'm going to figure out a way to get above that number. So the trick is, in terms of hitting those numbers, is really to not just use one media asset that you've built, in my case, the podcast, but try and use all your media assets to drive past that number. I love the uh, the alignment of incentives here where... If you actually, you know, contractually hold your feet to the fire and you have to get them to these customer numbers, then you're going to think outside the box. You're going to think about, okay, what channels can I use to get them those customer numbers? Yeah, they're ostensibly my podcast advertisers, but I have all these other channels. I have my email list. I have my Twitter. I have my blog. I can use these to try to help these companies hit their numbers so they reinvest with me as a podcast host. That's right. And we haven't really talked about what your podcast is about or how you go about producing it, but I think... Uh, you know, when I think about you, I think you're a guy who's like really into to different hacks. You always seem to find ways to do less with more. The number of episodes you've released on your podcast is absolutely insane. And just the entire format of the show, I think, is sort of part of the strategy. How does your podcast work and what's it about? I'm curious, Corlin, from so I can tell you what I think it is, but I'm curious from your perspective. I mean, you've listened to one or two episodes. How would you just like if you're talking to someone else like and I'm not there? So you know I won't be offended. What would you say yeah. about the podcast? Uh, I mean, I would say Nathan's podcast is, is one where he brings on basically the founders of successful SaaS businesses and just grills them on the numbers. He asks all of sort of 
acquisition numbers and retention numbers and revenue numbers and expenses and gets kind of the story behind what they do. And about 15, 20 minutes, I think it's the length of your episode. So they're very fast. They're very rapid fire. And they're really no bullshit. And behind the scenes, um, from what I understand, your calendar is crazy. Like I've seen screenshots of you recording something like 20 episodes in a single day. (laughs) The entire thing just blocked out. And you've done, I don't know how many, like over a thousand episodes of your podcast now? Yeah, we're about to pass 3,000 recorded 3, episodes. 3,000 recorded episodes, and it's been yeah. five years, which is insane. And I think one of the things a lot of people don't understand about podcasting is when you're thinking about download numbers, it's not just downloads per episode that matter. If you release more episodes, you're going to get more downloads overall, right? If you release five episodes a week, you're probably going to get five times as many downloads as you would if you release one episode every week, which allows you, I think, to basically get more sponsors and charge more money. Well, usually, yes. So the, the way people game the CPM model is they do exactly what you just described. You'll go to these podcasts and they'll be like, they'll be like a daily thing, but it's like two minutes. And it's like the founder, the, the host talking about like their favorite quote, right? But what happens is, let's say you, you only influence one person. You have one person listening. Well, if you release one episode a week, you get 52 downloads a year. Right? If you release one a day, you get 365 downloads a year. Which do you prefer? Most people would prefer 365 downloads. But what I'm trying to measure is actually influence. Can I get customers from my audience to get make it worth my sponsors? So th- there is a blend. I mean, what I am playing for, my show is never going to be serial. It's probably never going to be Tim Ferriss or Joe Rogan level. Right? It's never going to do... 10 million downloads a month. But what I can tell you is every single day when we release an episode, that episode will 100% get at least, you know, 6,000-ish downloads in the first week and about 10,000 downloads in the first two months that it's live. So it's basically like me doing a webinar every day to thousands of people. That's valuable to me because it's all hyper-targeted on B2B SaaS. And how do you actually get to those numbers? Because I think even someone listening who's like, okay, I've got the work ethic. I'll hit it consistently. I'm not going to quit. But when you first release, you know, your first 20, 30 podcasts, and you're still getting like 100 people listening to an episode. It's pretty easy to feel dejected. How did you grow your, your listenership? You, you, you have to realize what you're building. So if you're building a consumer play where you care about number of downloads, fine, go build that. But let's say that that example you just gave, those 100 listeners, it's the Fortune 100 and it's every CRO right from the fortune 100 and you only get a hundred downloads per episode. You're never going to be bigger. You know how much money people would pay for that podcast for that kind of access to influence major, major, major ticket prices. So that's what you have to understand is are, are you trying to just go for volume or are you going for influence? And if you're going for influence, understand that's very different than the volume game. In fact, by nature, if you're playing the influence game, you're going to do less volume and vice versa. There's been a lot said recently on the topic of just paid content. It's been really growing, I think, the last year or so, especially uh, recently with the advent of Substack. It seems like everybody's got a paid newsletter now. And what's cool about it is it seems to be working. People are actually paying for content. But it's consistently kind of what you say. Like You're more likely to have people pay for your content and pay more money for your content if you're helping them make money or if they're influential than you are if you have like some sort of very you know mass appeal podcast or mass appeal newsletter that doesn't really help anybody make money. It's kind of going out to the every everyday person and it just isn't really tied to improving people's lives in a very measurable financial way. One of the metrics I wish we had for sort of this, I'll call it the substack movement, is churn. 
right? We don't know, like we know there are successful newsletters with thousands of people paying five, 10, 20, $50 a month. What we don't know is like how sticky are these things? It reminds me back in the day when I used to interview people that ran membership sites and I'd always be impressed by their numbers, except their churn because churn would be something like 30 or 40% a month, Yeah, a month, not a year, a month. And it's because they have to continually upload new content every month to get people to stick and convince people to consume the content. Even if you create quality content and they don't consume it, they're still likely to churn. So, you know, my question to you would be, do you, do you think this lasts or is it sort of a flash pan sort of situation? Um, I think readers willingness to pay for content will last. And in the aggregate, I think that the broader trend of people will pay for actually good stuff will last. I think in terms of what people write, and how they deal with this churn problem, which is very real, that will evolve over time. I think people haven't really, like the playbook hasn't really been written for the indie hacker who wants to create a media business and figure out a way to continually churn out this new content that's novel and refreshing enough that people don't tune out after a while. The sort of an example I, I like to talk about is education versus news, sort of this dichotomy. Like educational content is wildly popular. People pay a lot to take courses. People pay tens of thousands of dollars to go to school. But education is almost 100% churn, right? Nobody takes algebra like 35 times the rest of their life. You know, once you graduate from a particular educational challenge, you're done. And I think a lot of the content people are putting out in the form of courses or like how-to guides, that kind of stuff will have super high churn. But also, I think when people create these newsletters, uh, one of the things they re- that they're not realizing is that you kind of have to be, for lack of a better word, newsy in my opinion. I think you need to be constantly fresh. You need to be talking about current events. You need to be up to date, like Ben Thompson is with Stratechery, for example. He probably has very low churn numbers. He's been growing his revenue and his subscriber base for the last six, seven years. And like his content is almost always focused on what's happening right now in the world, which I think, number one, relieves some of the burden of having to be super creative and figure out what to write about. Because guess what? It's always coming in. It's always like top news headlines. And number two, I think it's something people don't graduate from. There's never an age at which you're like, you know what? I no longer need to know what's going on in the world. You know, I learned everything that was happening the past 10 years, 10 years ago. So I'm done. And so he probably has low churn numbers. So I agree with you. I think that, you know, there's some real structural problems with a lot of these content businesses and not many of them will sort of stand the test of time. But I think some will and they'll figure out how to engage an audience consistently over a longer period of time. I mean, this is why I think less about should I launch a paid Substack newsletter and more about branding how I think as a product? What I mean by that is I guarantee you when the congressional testimony was happening, whatever it was last week with the four big tech CEOs, there were people watching who know of Ben that were wondering, I wonder what Ben thinks about this. And they're going to read his newsletter that week because they want his voice brand analyzing and reacting. And so that's where I think a lot of people get mistaken is they think it's more about the medium. Do I have a Substack newsletter? When really what it's about is what is your brand of thinking that makes people curious about how you're going to react to current news. Like for me, people, anytime something pops up in the B2B SaaS world, people will, will wonder two things. One, has Nathan grilled the CEO yet? And two, does Nathan think this thing's going to work or not work? And if I can stay relevant and write about those things with my branded voice, I think that's what creates super high retention on the content. I think that's so true. It also gives you sort of a moat where nobody can come and be like, 
a new Nathan Latka, like people who have listened to your podcast, who like your personality, who trust what you have to say and want to hear your opinion on the news, like they can't find a replacement for you. It doesn't exist out there. And so it's such a good way, like as you said, to prevent churn, to keep growing your brand. And I think the podcast that you have and the podcast medium in general is probably one of the best mediums besides maybe YouTube for developing like a personality-based affinity with your audience. Yeah, I agree. So what drives to your question that you asked four or five minutes into the us chatting about sort of other revenue streams and magazines and books and things like that. The way I think about my business today in terms of just media is we're in a world where whoever has can keep attention the longest wins. So my sort of mousetrap, right? My onboarding to your attention is podcast, but that's only 15 minutes a day. How do I get to the 16th minute, the 17th minute, the 18th minute, the 19th minute? This is how I think about building other sort of media brands. And so when people were flying, I was thinking, how can I get that hour long flight? How can I get your attention on that? And that's one of the reasons we launched the magazine, right? Is because I knew that I could get into airports because the book was already in airports. And then I could get another hour of these people's week if they're flying once per week on an hour long flight. And so that's how I think about all my media is take my current audience, send them a type form, ask them where else they consume content, and then go launch my voice and brand in whatever that medium is to get more of their day. Yeah. So let's talk about your magazine uh, because it's not often that somebody decides to launch a physical media product in an age where pretty much everything is digital. And I think the way that you're your brain sort of turns over the problem, which is the scarce resource is actually attention. People have only so many hours in their day. There's a ton of stuff fighting for their attention. And what you're trying to do if you have a media business is get more of those minutes, more of that time by ideally hitting them in places where the competition is less or providing more value. What was your thinking behind starting a magazine and and how did that process go? The first thought is it'll get a lot of attention just because it's the opposite of what everyone else is doing. I mean, you know, magazines are going out of business right now. So people are going to stop and go, wait, why is Nathan launching a magazine? So that's, that's like one big piece. The second piece is to our conversation earlier, we talked about keeping life expenses low. When you're launching new business lines, keeping production and expenses low on that new idea is also important. And so I might be able to get the magazine out for very, very cheap because like, if you look at it, for example, like all these, this is the July, 2020 issue. So this is the one that just came out, like all these headlines, it's basically just a podcast recording transcribed with my design team adding charts. And so the, the, like my all in cost to produce this are like just the content are under two grand a month, but we sell it for 29 per issue. So, so it's a, it's a new profitable attention grabbing distribution channel. What's cool about this is uh, you're kind of reutilizing the same skills over and over again. If you stay in media, you basically learn how to tell a story or you learn how to generate controversy or you learn how to write a headline. And you're doing that with your podcast. And then you move to the magazine medium. Not only can you reuse a lot of the content like you're saying, but it's basically the same skill set. Well, how do I get people to read this you know, magazine? How do I get them to open when they see the cover? How do I get them to you know, keep reading once they hit a, an, an article? Uh, probably no different than the same you know, tactics that you use to make an episode of your podcast engaging, et cetera. So um, my question for you here is what, what have you learned about producing compelling content and getting people to care? And I guess grabbing people's attention in a world where it's so competitive to get people's attention. So in my opinion, to, to really understand this, you have to study how people are consuming that content, right? So 
podcasts are usually consumed where someone's driving, they're at the gym, they're washing dishes. So you have to have audio typically works better in terms of retention if it's very dense information, tight and dense, much denser than writing a longer form story. So podcasts keeping attention is about at the beginning of the episode saying things like, okay, SaaS CEO, how much are you charging customers? What was your last round valuation? The CEO says, I'm not telling you the valuation. And I say, we'll get back to that in five minutes. Right. right? Because then the people are going to keep listening to see if I come, come back in. So, so like that open loop with the magazine, and this is very similar to a book. There's no ears involved. It's actually like all like physical touch. So like literally, I mean, if you look at sort of how this magazine looks and those of you listening, you can't see this, but like we spent a lot of time deciding like the weight of the back cover and the front cover, because when you open it and you start flipping, if the weight of the cover is not, there's not a big enough delta between the weight of the inner pages. When you, when you flick it open for the first time, more than just the cover will pop out. So when our cover pops out and you look at this, what you see is like very dense information on SAS metrics, which is meant to drive your curiosity to future pages. And like, that's what gets you flipping. And then ultimately what you want to do is no matter where the reader opens to in the magazine, there's something that catches their attention and makes them keep reading. And for me, it's just a data export. Like I just take all the data I've captured from the podcast in terms of revenue of SaaS companies, valuations, customer accounts. I just print it in the thing. And so we've seen investors and folks like on their desks when I visit, they will have this open and they will have circled like deals to go after. I'm like, okay, I'm doing this whole physical media thing right yeah. And that goes exactly back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, when you really want to have a podcast that was only listened to by like, you know, the hundred top CEOs, well, your podcast and your magazine are listened to and subscribed by actual investors who are investing tens of millions of dollars. And it's like making them money. They're making real business decisions as a result of that. And that is super valuable in terms of the advertisers that you can get. It's super valuable in terms of whether or not people will pay to subscribe. Of course, they'll pay to subscribe because this is actually... You know, 30 bucks a month is a rounding area compared to how much money they might make if they catch a deal and what you're doing. And so I, I love the fact that it's not just pure entertainment, it's not just clickbait, but it's actually real numbers, real data, and it all works together so nicely since this data is actually coming out of your podcast interviews. That's right. And by charging 30 per issue, it allows me to use the subject email line, the most expensive magazine in the world, which gets people paying <laughs> attention. I had Sam Parr from The Hustle on earlier this year, and he recommended a copywriting book called Advertising Secrets of the Written Word by, I think, Joseph Sugarman. It's like a classic. It's, you can't even find it on Amazon. I think it's like it's all sold out or like it's only like hardcover copies for like 150 bucks or something crazy. Uh, but you can yeah, find or like it's super it's like 800 bucks. Yeah, yeah. Just like crazy. But you can find the PDF online if you look for it. And there's just so many different copywriting tips to it. And I've noticed like in your posts on any hackers, for example, or the things you've written online, you've like you seem like a seasoned student of long form copywriting. You know, you're always engaging with your first sentence. It's always short. It's always easy to get in. And then you always open um, what I call story gaps where you basically arouse someone's curiosity, like you were saying, by like asking a question, but then not answering it, you know, until later. So people keep reading because they have that question in the back of their mind, which is pretty much what any good TV show or book or story does. You nailed it. I mean, there are a lot of ways to get attention in today's world. I have found myself defaulting, though, to one tactic that's just worked the best, which is curiosity. I mean, so like looking at my last Indie Hackers post, actually, right? And we tested that the, the headline I wrote for Indie Hackers versus the one we used on Product Hunt versus the one that I emailed out to my list, they're all different. So the one we put up on Indie Hackers on August 6th, the headline is, Why Hackers Are Taking Money 
from FounderPath. Probably what I should have said, because no one knows what FounderPath is, is why hackers are taking so much money from this weird new tool. And then don't mention FounderPath until the last sentence, <laughs> right? Yeah. But like, yes, it is very difficult for people, most people, it's, I haven't been able to hire anyone for this, to, to figure out how to generate an open loop in the first sentence that also directly correlates with whatever it is you're trying to get attention on. That's the hard part. You did a, a post when you talked about how your magazine was making money on indie hackers. And I love the intro. I think it's the first or the second sentence it says, even my mom laughed at me. More on her in a second. <laughs> exactly. And then you go and tell the story about you you putting together this magazine. Let's go through that story because I think it's pretty fascinating. You know, what are the yeah. first steps to actually creating a magazine when you have no idea what you're doing and you've never created a magazine before? Yeah. So the first step is to figure out sort of the the first like art. Like, what are you going to put in the magazine? Why are people going to read this thing? And what I thought was, well, founders and investors love Excel files can I make like a physical Excel file? Cause I, you know, I don't, you know, when I read like ink or for actually that's how I started. Whenever I was flying, I would just buy all the other magazines and I would look and like whatever held my attention, I would make a note of it and say, my audience probably will like this too. So I loved anytime in a magazine where I saw a big chart with like revenue data or valuation data or things like that, or, you know, hundred ways this CEO got their first hundred customers or something like that. So I knew that I want to do like a lot of sort of listicle stuff with data that people can't get anywhere else, even pitch book crunch base. I mean, if you search any software company like GitLab plus the word revenue or IPO or valuation, we rank number one, even above TechCrunch, above Bloomberg, above Forbes, all these spots because it's so focused. So that is how I started the magazine. It was actually with the open loop, which is why are people going to literally open this every day when it arrives in their mailbox? Why will they open it? And how do you actually get the physical product printed? <laughs> like who do you who do you talk to about that? How much does it cost? So the first, yeah, yeah, these are good questions. So literally, the first version was. We put a big PDF together. I walked to my local, you know, I, I emailed print and go at FedEx.com to get my code, which I took to the local FedEx store and I just printed it at the FedEx store. I then walked it to the front of the store and said, Hey, can I pay to put like the cover, make it, you know, glossy? And it was like 60 bucks, something ridiculously high. I'm like, okay, well, this isn't going to work. And I also don't want to physically mail all these myself, everything. So I started searching for options to do this at scale. The one I landed on was a company called smartpress.com, which is pretty darn good. I mean, you know, you know, we now ship, you know, thousands of magazines and the magazine altogether has done, you know, over a hundred thousand dollars in revenue. Um, and it's still been profitable. So they handle the process today is I upload the PDF I upload an Excel file of all the shipping addresses of the buyers, and they take everything from there, smartpress.com. And how did you get your first customers for your magazine? Because I imagine it's a little bit different than you know putting out a digital product or a podcast. This is simpler than you would think. It sounded like this. Cortland, I'm launching a podcast. I'm launching a magazine. It's going to be the most expensive magazine in the world. Every VC is going to read it. It's 29 bucks. I'm thinking of putting it on the cover first. Will you buy a copy? And whoever said they buy a copy first, that's who I put on the cover. Uh, I forget who it was, uh, but, but that's how I got my first sale. That's pretty interesting. Just like a cold email to somebody that you didn't know, or was it like a previous podcast guest? No, no. I, I emailed all the, all the CEOs I interviewed on the podcast, which uh, was at that okay. point like probably 1,000. So, so basically just advertised your magazine to 1,000 CEOs and promised to put one of them on the cover. How many people subscribed as a result of that campaign? I do not know the exact numbers off the top of my head, but it wasn't big numbers. I mean, I'm talking less than 10 sales. 
right, on, on those first couple issues. What, what really started to scale, like here's a good example. The next issue coming out, uh, we're putting Diego Gomez on the cover for two reasons. One, he asked and said he, he would market the heck out of the magazine if we did it. But then I had to say, well, it's kind of like a, an event. People who pay to be on stage are usually terrible speakers. So I had to make sure there was compelling content behind it. Otherwise, the magazine would flop. And so I did an interview with Diego and he told me how they went from 13 million revenue last year to 24 million in terms of run rate today. So they've doubled even during COVID. They're also in Brazil. They are hiring people away from HubSpot. And a lot of people are saying they're the next HubSpot, which is interesting. So that's the subject line. He just emailed me this morning and said, Nathan, we love how the rough draft looks. We'd love to buy several hundred copies. What's the cost? Michael, like, well, great. They, they, you know, they cost... We'll give you a bulk discount of sort of $25 per issue. So you can start to do the math. Basically, just the person I put on the cover and just the bulk order they place makes that magazine highly profitable. You've also done similar things with your book. I'm hearing this recurring theme of you're going to put out some content. You contact someone who's famous or successful and you say, hey, you know, will you be my partner in this? You know, I'm not going to do this unilaterally, but like if you will agree to order some magazines or promote it or do something, then I will put content about you on the cover or inside the magazine. And I, I, from our previous conversations, I know you've done the same with your book. So give me the story there. How did you write a book? Why did you write a book? And how did you actually yep. uh, grow the sales? I wrote a book because I was jealous of Ryan Holiday and I wanted to see if I could sell more books than him. That's the real answer. Same thing with everyone who is like a big writer. I'm like, this is a, this is a this is a new board game to play. Let me see if I can write a book. It also was like sexy that like I failed high school English and like sending the bestseller article in the Washington World to like Mr. Bone, my English teacher in high school, would just be like amazing. So that's why I wanted to do it. But what prompted me to actually like start writing was organically when the podcast started ranking really high in the business category on iTunes book publishers with business authors started reaching me asking to put their writers on my show, their authors on the show. And what I started doing was taking a screenshot of their Amazon rank before they came on the show, which was terrible usually. And a screenshot after they came on the show, which was always way better because the show drove sales. And I would send that email to the publisher after every interview and let them know, just so you know, like we killed it here. And what happened is a couple of them started saying like, well, crap, if you can sell so many books, like whenever you want to write a book, tell us, because that's the biggest issue we have is there's great writers that can't sell. They don't want to give that writer a big advance. They need people that can sell who happen to also be potentially an okay writer, right? You can fix the writing. You, it's harder to get the sales. And so that's what happened is I signed uh, with an agent named Jim Levine in New York who was also the agent to Ray Dalio Principles. Um, I mean, I had no business being signed with this guy. But what I did is I brought him pre-orders. It was like crazy. He's like, wait, people have committed to spending thousands of dollars to buy your book, and they don't even know what the book's going to be about. And I said, yeah, Jim, they came on my podcast. They loved it. And so that's, that's what we did. He helped me then fine-tune the book outline. He emailed it to about 10 publishers Three or four of them wanted in-person meetings in New York. And in those in-person meetings, I had my backpack on my side because I knew eventually if they were interested, they'd say, well, how do you plan to sell the book? And I'd look them in the eye. I'd pause for a minute. I'd clench my jaw. I'd look very confident. I'd slowly look it out of my bag, reach in, ruffle around, pull out these, these you know, six copies of these printed purchase orders that were already signed for thousands of dollars face them down on the table, push them slowly across the boardroom table to the publishers, <laughs> be quiet as they read them. They look back up and go, you have 
$30,000 in pre-sales and you don't even know what the title is. And I said, we'll have no problem selling the book. It was the ultimate indie hacker, MVP, smoke test, whatever you want to call it. You know, you haven't written a book, you don't know what the title is, and you're getting sales, $30,000 in sales, which is crazy. How did you get that many people to, to yeah. pre-order your book? We put together a one-pager, just like we do with the podcast. We called it Book Sponsorship. I mean, we didn't even like try and hide the fact that we were going to basically sell branded content in the book. And so what it was is if you pre-ordered and committed to spending $5,000 on copies... By the way, I couldn't even tell them how many copies they were going to because I didn't know what the price of the book was going to be. So what I had to do is get them to sign purchase orders for just an amount of spend. So we'll buy as many books as we can with five grand. And what they would get for that is in some cases, it was like three sentences talking about their business, their company in the book. In some cases, it was sort of a full example of them plus a screenshot of their business in the book, like of their home site or something. And then if they paid like a lot, I would even type the link back to their website in the book and a link that nobody can click. Huh? Yeah. Nobody can click though, because what I'm selling, what I'm selling is ego here. What I'm selling is I told these people, this is going to be a best selling book. It's going to be with the top publisher. I'm already signed with Jim Levine. Look at his other books. He's published, you know, do you want a spot in the book? Um, and look, I email a thousand. I don't care if 900 of them say 950 say no. If I got five, that all committed to five grand. Boom. That's all I need. You're doing a lot of smart stuff. And I want to go over some of it just in case people have missed it. The first thing is that you're very keen from endeavor to endeavor. I think you're very consistent at looking at things from the other person's point of view and trying to figure out what it is that they want. And then thinking about how you can get it to them. And then crucially, demonstrating to them that you know that and you can do it and you care. And only then do you ask about what you want. So it's really apparent with your your podcast story, how you're showing these publishers, you know, hey, I know you're trying to move books and hey, here's how I can prove that I'll do that for you. Here's the Amazon rankings before and after. Like probably nobody does that. Publishers email me to get authors on this podcast. I've never replied like that. So it's super smart and just mutually beneficial if you want to establish a relationship and get more pitches like that. With your book, it's the same thing. Like you understand the CEOs who come on your show, they're human, they have egos, they want to be in a case study in a best-selling business book. So if you appeal to that, you're really giving them something that they want, right? And then you can ask them to buy a bunch of books. And I think that feeds into the second thing, which is the way that you're asking for what you want is in alignment with what they want. So you're not just like, hey, you know, give me a bunch of money and I'll put you in my book. I mean, it's very much a sponsorship, but you're, you're saying, hey, you know, if you support the book and buy a bunch of copies, I'll put your case study in the book. And the difference is really subtle, but I think it just feels much better if you're in that person's shoes to be able to tell others, oh yeah, I really supported Nathan with this book. You know, I'm a, I'm a case study in the book too, right? That's just more uh, in alignment with what the way that they want to look. And I, I think it's, it's really underrated. I mean, another example from a case study that I've read actually is there was a social network, I forget the name, but it was kind of a Q&A site. And they experimented with paying people to answer questions on the site. And it didn't work. Nobody was there to make money. They had jobs. It just wasn't in alignment with why they were there. So they changed it. And the new system was they started giving people sort of reputation points for answering questions on the site. And that worked spectacularly because people were there to sort of boost their egos and be seen as smart and help others. And they wanted like a credit system proving that that's what they were doing. They didn't want money. So it, it makes sense to, it matters to align with how people get rewarded with what they actually are there to do. And then I think the final thing that you do really, really intelligently is that you're not afraid to write a lot. Like you said, you send out this one pager, you're doing these long posts on any hackers, all the, the wisdom on the internet right now says you need to be concise. You need to only have like five words on your landing page. 
And I think that's bull. I think you need to take the time to convince people and sell them. And that often requires writing a lot of words. And you just have to write those words intelligently and be compelling, get people hooked in the beginning. And this goes back to all those copywriting books. You really take the time to do that. And I think that's super smart. You did a great job summarizing in those three points. But I imagine if you're listening right now and you are an indie hacker, uh, you might be thinking, well, wait a second. What if the book wasn't a bestseller? Does Nathan refund everybody? Or what a sec? wait a second. Isn't Nathan get really embarrassed if he had people on the podcast and he said it would get a million downloads and only gets one download? Like, what if, why, why isn't Cortland pushing Nathan on this thing? And like, what I would tell you is yes, like that's a massive risk. I mean, there is a lot to be said for just Elon Musk saying we're going to Mars and me in my own little world that's much smaller than Elon Musk vision saying we will have a billion downloads. You sort of make things happen by how confidently you say them. And that's key. And by the way, when you have 30,000 in pre-sales, you can use that money to go buy newsletter placement in the hustle, which will help make sure you become a bestseller, right? So like, it is all kind of fuels together. Yeah, and I think it affects your mindset as well. If you set this goal for yourself, you're going to be a bestseller, or you're going to go to Mars, and then you tell a bunch of people about it, you kind of have to, you kind of hold your feet to the fire at this point where you have this extra motivation that you might not have otherwise. And if you fail, like it's going to be embarrassing and it's going to suck. But because you know that, you're going to work harder, right? If you tell your podcast sponsors, hey, you know, what's your CAC? I'm going to beat that. They're going to work harder to get them a better, lower cost of customer acquisition. So I, I think it just works together in so many ways. It's true. And, and I mean, this sums up one of my favorite sayings that I live by every time. And I think about it now a lot when people are sitting at home, bored, they can't go out, people are, there's mental health issues, there's emotional issues in general. I mean, one of the big things that, and I think Walt Disney has actually said this, you see, one of the, one of the interesting things about people is we tend to become what we imagine, but the issue is very few of us have large imaginations, right? Or there's not a lot of imagining going on. So like, I would just encourage people to block off 10 minutes once a week with your coffee in the morning or your latte and just give yourself permission, just barf imagination onto your notebook without any reservations. And I think that will do powerful things in terms of your psyche. So in terms of your imagination, you know, at some point you had this triple media threat going on. You've got a book, you're a published author. Uh, it did become, I think, a, a Wall Street Journal bestseller. It did, yeah. Got, no New York Times, but Wall Street Journal. Yeah, so you, you check that box. You've got your magazine, which is going strong and growing. You've got your podcast, which is you know getting tens of thousands of downloads and, and generating hundreds of thousands and sometimes millions of dollars in revenue a year. But you, you sort of turned a corner where your businesses after that were more SaaS-based. So you've got GetLaka.com, which is kind of a giant subscription-based database of SaaS metrics and information that people subscribe to. And you've also got FounderPath, which you referenced earlier when you talked about the most recent posts you made on Indie Hackers, where you're basically helping founders, helping finance companies. Why not continue with the sort of media stuff? Why not build a media empire? Why go in the direction of SaaS businesses? Because I read Bloomberg's biography many years ago, and you start to learn that Bloomberg magazine was meant to deepen the moat for the Bloomberg terminal. You start to realize the power of media brands relative to actual then products on the back of other software, physical products. And so the answer is both. This is a unique situation where they, they, it's not a one plus one is two sort of thing. It's a one plus one equals like eight or nine sort of thing. You know, why does Bezos own the Washington Post? Well, if the number one way that Amazon margins are going to get hit is by government regulation, guess how he can fight back against that? Well, he has the Washington vote. Now, he'll say that he obviously is never going to do that, but you're silly if you think 
that media plus product is not more powerful than just all media or all product. There's a lot of big media brands right now that I think would it do them a lot of good to actually launch a sort of product and, and use the media brand to build a mode around the product. And at what point does that switch sort of flip in your brain when you say, okay, my media brand is big enough, strong enough that I should start building products? When you have sponsors that don't blink when you're increasing your sponsor fees, because what that means is they have a product and they're willing to pay you almost anything to get in your channel. Maybe you should go build that product, right? Or build that product with a spin, right? It's just, a, it's clear that you have influence and purchasing power under you. You should use that so that you get the margin, not go build MailChimp.com, right? Yeah. And so then how do you decide what product to build? I mean, you could do what you're saying. You could say, okay, my sponsors are paying me to get on the show. I should just build what they're building. But it doesn't seem to be the path that you took with FounderPath and with GitLaka. So the way, the way I did this, and I cannot, and I would never say that I knew that this is what was going to happen when I launched the show back in 2015. But what happened was, you mentioned this earlier, I'll have one day a week where it's literally 20-minute interviews stacked on top of each other for seven, eight, nine hours. I mean, I'll knock out 20, 30 interviews in a day. So there's 20 minutes reserved for the founder, but we only record for 15, which means there's five minutes of downtime after we're done recording. And what started happening is in that downtime, founders started saying, Nathan, I think you understand my business in 15 minutes better than anyone I've ever talked to. You know, what would you value it at? Or, hey, we're looking to raise. Who do you think I should raise from? Or listen, Nathan, I know that episode just sounded really great, but actually my co-founder is about to leave and my wife is divorcing me. I need to sell the company. Can you help me sell it? And what happened is I started helping founders do all these things. And one of the things back in 2016 that a lot of them asked me to help them do was they started asking me to help them raise debt. I'm going, what do you mean? You mean VC? What do you mean debt? And I started learning, oh my gosh, there's this new thing where if people are not wanting to go after some billion dollar VC backhole sort of thing, but they just want to build a $10 million, $5 million, $1 million a year business that generates a lot of profit that they can live on and the cash flow, a lot of founders were starting to use debt. And so I started getting very, very close to debt providers because I was helping them do loans into founders I had on my show. And so I sourced many, many millions, over $100 million worth of debt, they call it loan tape, into some of the largest debt providers today for software companies like Lighter Capital, SaaS Capital, ClearBank, Tamiya, Hercules, CIBC. There's, there's about 100 major players in the space. And I kept a big Excel file of all the players out of my founders and did matchmaking. And what I realized, Cortland, is when you started looking at these debt deals that like, I'll pick on Liner Capital. I like those guys, but I'm going to pick on them for a second. They do debt deals that are what's called an RBF, revenue-based financing. And it's very difficult to actually calculate the cost of capital. But what I realized was when I helped a founder raise, I think it was like 500 grand from Lighter back in 2016, and I watched that founder, how they paid back the loan, the effective interest rate was over 25%. Wow. And going, oh my gosh, there's a real opportunity here. This is a healthy SaaS company. There's a real opportunity to get them capital way under 25%. And that was the genesis for FounderPath today, which is, again, there's so many founders taking money from FounderPath.com. It's, it's something I'm very excited about. So this is yet another advantage to starting with the distribution, starting with some sort of media endeavor is you get to talk to so many different people. If you have any sort of successful media business, you're probably putting out content at least once a week, often more often than that. And you're going to get a lot of reps in. You're going to learn a lot of things. You're going to build trust with your listeners who then say, okay, well, Nathan is you know, talking to these other big shots. Like 
He's a connector. I should, I should get to know Nathan. I should ask him for advice. He knows what's up. You get to spot trends because you're constantly meeting new people and talking to new people and seeing what they're doing, just like you spotted the sort of debt financing trend. It's, it's just such an unfair advantage to start there, I think. And it's usually the last place that founders start. When you start to learn. Yeah, exactly. You start to learn. And it's, it's forced learning, right? Like anyone could learn, right? Anyone at home right now could learn. But if your business doesn't depend on you learning, well, then all the motivation to learn has to come from you. You have to get up every day and say, I'm going to set aside this many hours to read and learn and talk to people. But like, you're probably not going to be able to do that, right? But if you have to get up and go to work to produce a podcast every week, then like whether you want to learn or not, you're going to. And that compounded over years and years of learning is just like such an unfair hack. You just have this wind at your back that's pushing you to learn. Yeah, my learning my learning velocity, I would argue, is is top 0.5% of anyone in the B2B SaaS space, in my opinion. Like, I don't, you're going to ask how do you quantify that? I'm just saying, I think I get exposed to more data points at a higher velocity in B2B SaaS than almost anyone else in the space. So the people listening to this are ND hackers. They've never really considered raising money. They also haven't considered this new trend, really, of raising debt. So talk to me about this trend of revenue-based financing and what makes FounderPath different and why people might consider going down this path when traditionally they just wanted to bootstrap their companies. So a couple things here. Most founders don't realize how valuable their $10,000 a month of revenue stream is. Banks won't value it. Banks won't give you a loan against it because they don't understand software. And there's it's not like a house mortgage. There's no house to take over. So you can't raise debt from a bank at a SaaS company unless you've raised VC. And then SVB and CIBC and Hercules will, will put money in, but they're really just trusting that the VC did good due diligence and they're banking on the VC. But what if what if you have a five million dollar bootstrap company? You don't want to raise VC. Does that mean that you shouldn't be able to get debt? No, you're probably healthier than the VC backed company that's burning money. You're a better candidate for debt. So who's servicing that need? And and really the only answer was these sort of you know lighter capital SaaS cap. I mean these ones that were already talked about. And so that's why I started helping them build their loan tape. But when I then looked at their terms that were very confusing, I said, there's got to be a way to get money to founders at cheaper interest rates and when those companies are much younger, meaning maybe they only have 10 grand a month in revenue and 12 months of history. And so my ultimate goal is to be able, you know, we built this tech platform at founderpath.com where founders can connect their Stripe account, their QuickBooks, their Xero, their Google Analytics, et cetera. We generate a credit score. And the better your credit score, the cheaper we can give you money. And so right now we have 1,500 companies connected to that. We're tracking almost 25 billion real-time and private SaaS company annual revenue and almost 30 billion in expenses. Expenses are greater than revenue because some of the companies that have connected have raised VC, so they spend more than they make. That's a massive data set, which allows us to have a very good credit score, which allows us to really understand SaaS companies, even at fairly early stages. So, Cortland, my goal is to be able to, like a year from now, almost close my eyes and say, anyone that hits $10,000 a month in revenue that's connected to FounderPath, I can write you a $30,000 check at a very low interest rate. You click a button, you take the money. Because what happens then is... FounderPath then becomes basically on the balance sheet of every SaaS company on earth, right? That's more than 10 grand in AR. And then you can help the founder do anything else they want. Raise more debt, scale, sell, raise equity maybe one day if they decide to go down that path. And it's like, that's the ultimate vision is how can we build FounderPath to the point where there are billions and billions of dollars flowing through it, getting money to early stage SaaS founders. So I want to understand kind of the early stages of how you built this business. And I think because you started in media first, we have to understand 
just like the fundamentals of how you run those businesses because there's only one of you. There's only so many hours in the day, but you've got the podcast still coming out. You've got your magazine still coming out. You've got your online database, a subscription uh, is still being updated. How is all that working and, and how much time do you spend on FounderPath? Yeah. So almost all my time today is spent on FounderPath. Okay, everyone knows Drift. Drift has a book. Like David Kansas, he wrote a book. They also just launched a podcast, by the way. Like they do all these things inside the company. I just did those things first. And now like the product that they're all promoting is FounderPath. And so all my time is spent connecting with B2B SaaS founders. It's just, you know, some of them, it's just the podcast episode. Others, the podcast episode turns into, you know, we feature them on GitLatka and then they really like me. And then they connect on FounderPath and end up taking money from FounderPath in terms of debt. Uh, It just really depends. I mean, one thing I will underscore though is GitLatka, all the data we capture there is data that we get publicly by interviewing the founder or from press releases or things like that. I mean, it's a very powerful data set. And a lot of times, by the way, I get these big founders on that have raised a bunch of money. They come on, they brag, they brag, they brag. And they say they're the fastest growing in the space. And I say, well, what's your revenue? And they're like, well, we went from $1 to three. It's 300% year over year growth. I'm like, that's like not great. And oh, by the way, they're burning $3 million a month. Like, and then when I hit them really hard like this, they get mad when we list them on the website and they complain to press and then the press hits me really hard. You know, Vox wrote this disgusting hit piece on me, which by the way, Vox is going to be bankrupt here shortly anyway, because they don't understand how to run a business, but it's nasty headlines. They saw that Nathan lack of search line was increasing. So they wrote this hit piece, but they did call me a best-selling author and a top podcaster in the headline. They just put con man on the end of it, which was like a beautiful thing of <laughs> who knows what we call that. But point being is like, GitLatka data is completely set. It's a whole different company. It's the Latka Agency LLC. FounderPath is a Delaware C Corp where mm. it's a fintech company, really. There's a balance sheet business. There's a fund that we use to do the loans. And then it's a tech business, uh, FounderPath, that does the actual underwriting and, and sort of understanding. Actually, FounderPath, the tech company, is a lot like their metrics or ProfitWell. It's just we use, we give away free analytics tools and then we're generating a credit score to then help us understand where we should loan right. money to. So who's working with you? Do you have employees? Do you have you know, contractors? Who's helping you out? Yeah, so on the founder path side, I really want to find someone that was kind of opposite than me that was also an engineer. So I wanted to find someone that, again, was sort of launching and making a lot of things. And I'm like, well, wait a second, I should just go find who like the product hunt maker of the year was in 2016. And his name was Mubs. Yeah. Uh, Mubish Arkball. He essentially is the co-founder on FounderPath. Uh, so, so he has done all the development work. You know, I tell him, Mubs, do not stop launching side projects. Use FounderPath, like connect your side projects to FounderPath to help us build better analytics for indie hackers. Because remember, there's a lot of people using FounderPath that don't want to raise debt. They use it just to track all their analytics and get recommendations and benchmarks. So we have now two full-time engineers on FounderPath. I am obviously leading on marketing distribution. We have unbelievable advisors. We have a major announcement. The top bank in the world, I'm not going to say which bank, but the top bank in the world, the former CFO and CIO is actually joining on as an advisor. We have a lot of pension funds and family offices wanting to give money to early stage SaaS founders, but they don't know how to do the analysis. They want to put that through FounderPath since we do great analysis. So we're growing very quickly. Our, our, you know, our goal is to, you know, in 20 next year, so 2021, put out $100 million into BB SaaS companies. This year, we'll easily pass $10 million. Uh, but next year, we want to keep basically 10xing year over year to the point where in 2022, 2023, we've got a billion, $2 billion flowing through the platform. 
that's super cool. I had no idea Mubs was uh, helping you out with Founder Path. I mean, he is a machine. He's a previous Andy Hackers podcast guest, and you mentioned his side projects. He's the most prolific builder of projects I've ever seen. He literally just like, I think a few days ago, released www.ndhackers.tv, where yes. he is sort of automatically grabbing all the best and most discussed videos from Andy Hackers and putting them on one website. He's just, every week, it seems like he's got something new. That's exactly right. And that's the exact sort of DNA I wanted on the founding team of FounderPath because he is who FounderPath is for. Like if one of those side projects starts to take off and hits 10 grand a month in revenue, he can juice it up by getting 30, 40 grand from FounderPath to keep scaling it. Like he, he, it's just, I love working with him so much. It's the perfect sort of fit. Yeah. So a business like FounderPath is obviously very different than running a podcast, writing a book, publishing a magazine. You actually have to do this hard analysis of generating these credit scores, basically, off a pretty limited data set. I mean, there's a lot there, but that's a whole career path in and of itself, just being able to value a company and assess risk. How are you handling that part of FounderPath and how much of it is a work in progress? Over the past four years, you're going to help founders get almost $100 million of loans from other debt providers. I would sit on the calls when those debt providers would ask like the underwriters would ask the founder questions and I would take notes. And so one of the under, underwriters one day would say, well, what's your customer concentration risk? And I'd write down customer concentration risk. And I would then figure out how to code those things into founder path. So basically I had this massive list of hundreds of things that other debt providers would ask founders. And I said, Mubs, this is, we have to build this into the analysis to get the credit score. So for example, if your retention in month 13 is really poor, so annual renewals is really poor, your credit score gets dinged. But if your churn score, you know, really, really low, in other words, you retain a lot of your customers, you have a high credit score. And the higher you keep your credit score, even if you only have 10 grand a month in revenue, we can get you capital that is super, super cheap, like under 15% interest rate, which compare that to VCs that need to make 40% annually to be a top performing fund, 40% IRR. It's such cheap capital. And so the idea is, not only cheap capital, but how quickly can we get it out? And so we have had someone connect to FounderPath.com and in under 24 hours get a $250,000 check wired to their bank out of the system, loans done. So fast and cheap is really what we want to build. And again, that's not even my original idea. Amazon, what is Amazon? Fast and cheap. It's just I'm going to apply those same human principles that everyone wants, fast and cheap, to SaaS debt. Yeah, it's pretty cool to, to go to your website and play around with the calculator. You can just put in, okay, how much capital do you want today? I put in, I want 250K. Maybe I want to hire yeah. a couple of expensive developers. You know, on the left, you say, okay, well, you know, here's the cost of the loan. Here's the interest. Here are the fees, $0 in fees. Here's the interest rate, you know, 15%, pay it back in four years. And I can just basically click apply and you're just going to run all that magic that you just talked about. And then but Corlin, read, read this. We've worked very hard on this very critical sentence. It's maybe the most important sentence on FounderBath. What is the sentence right above the purple apply button? Say when you type in so 250 grand. Can you spend $250,000 today and add more than $6,958 in new monthly recurring revenue? And so it's kind of telling me, like, this is how much money I need to basically make in order to make this loan basically free. Exactly. Exactly. So, like, to you that point, put this in bold, man. It's in light gray text. I barely can see it. I know. We're still experimenting, but that is the sentence. That is the sentence. Like, think about it seven grand a month. If you can I give you 200, let's do an indie hacker example. Let's say someone's listening right now with only 10 grand a month in revenue. So if you type in 30,000, what's it say? Probably said, what would okay. the loan be on that? Let me see. Hold on. Yeah, 30,000, it says uh, 30,835. So if you okay. want to get, if you want, if you're doing 10 grand a month right now in revenue, you go to FounderPath, you type in 30 grand is what you want. The, qu- the question is, can you take 30 grand today and add more than $800 in new monthly recurring revenue, right? Or about 10 grand in new ARR. 
So like, think about that. Can you take 30 grand today and add 10 grand a new AR? That's $3 CAC. Most people can spend a dollar and get a dollar. Imagine taking $3, you can get $3. You just like seriously increased your valuation without giving up any equity using cheap debt from FounderPath. Why aren't banks doing this? Like, Why haven't traditional institutions figured out how to basically do what you're doing? Two reasons. One, they're FDIC insured and they're OCC regulated, which to anyone else, what that means is the regulatory risk of doing this is too high to jeopardize their banking business. They don't want to lose their FDIC sort of insurance by getting into like a new asset class. That's why that's why SVB doesn't do this with non-VC backed companies. Give me your vision for kind of the future here. We've talked about a few trends. You know, people are paying more for content. People are working more remotely. There's this new trend where founders are just raising more money. Andy hackers are raising debt. What does the world look like five, 10 years from now you know, in your wildest guesses? More polarization. So you're going to, on a net basis, have a less, less volume of software companies raising VC. But the ones that do are going to be much larger rounds. So, and the reason is because the federal government, especially if, <clears throat> if Trump gets reelected, you're printing money. All that money is flowing into corporate bonds, ETFs, places it's never flowed before. All that money, though, eventually finds itself, a lot of it, in VC funds that now have to deploy more money and generate bigger returns, which means they have to do bigger deals. They have to like an idea and it has to, instead of be a billion dollar exit, they have to see a clear path to a $10 billion exit to write their initial check. So everything's going to be more polarized, but with more money in the system, if somebody understands data of software companies and just early software companies in general and founders, they can deploy more debt at scale. So I think you're going to see a lot more quantity, number of founders doing debt. The asset class of B2B SaaS debt will be growing. Um, but also on the VC and equity side, that asset class will grow, but it will go to a smaller number of people at the top. Very interesting. What do you think about uh, sort of Andy Hacker side of things? There's more and more people getting into this, more and more people starting companies. It's easier than ever to start a company, arguably. I mean, there's so much technology to help one person accomplish so much. But there's also arguably, you know, more competition as a result of that. We were just talking about these sort of distribution channels, you know, becoming a little bit clogged up. There's so many people fighting to get you to subscribe to their newsletter on Substack. How do you see that playing out? And I know I'm asking you to speculate here. I mean, look, I'm ha- I think about this a ton. The power. I mean, you have so much more power today, even if you're at 5, 10, 20 grand a month in revenue than you did three, four years ago. And so, look, Amazon brought down the price of hosting. Right, Moore's Law has generally made tech everything much cheaper, which is why we can launch companies now without having to put servers in the back closet. So the, the, the scarcity now in terms of building a great company is actually not capital. It's attention. And the way you win attention as an indie hacker is by building media. So the big companies a decade from now are going to be ones today launching media brands alongside their software products. That's the future. I think the same thing. I mean, and people complain so much about the competition. You know, every SaaS idea is taken and everyone's making so much money. But again, if you can build some of these like personality driven media businesses, whether you're a YouTuber or a podcaster or a blogger or a newsletter writer, however you get started, like you can carve out your niche. No one can compete with you because you're the only person with your personality. And you can use that to grow into a bigger and more successful media company. And hopefully, do what Nathan's saying and go on to build products that actually make millions of dollars and, and work nicely with your media business. Nathan, it's sort of a tradition on the podcast. I always ask people for the last question, 
you know, what's your general high-level advice to indie hackers who are just getting started, who maybe don't have an idea yet, or maybe they're just getting started, uh, you know, writing the first lines of code for what they're building? My usual answer would be build the attention first, the product second, but we've beat that to death already. So I'll give something fresh here, which is like momentum is always key. The difference between, in my opinion, Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos and Elon Musk, right, is Elizabeth was pitching a vision and eventually people stopped believing her and dug deeper and realized what she was projecting isn't actually true and ultimately ended up in fraud. There are things that big visionaries say as if they already exist that do not exist, that don't get in trouble, end up building billion-dollar businesses. And the difference between an Elizabeth Holmes and an Elon Musk is, in my opinion, momentum. Do people still believe you can do it? So even at the early stages, start putting big visions out there. And no matter what, you have to create week-over-week momentum. Put out a big vision and follow up with weekly momentum. Nathan Latka, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Thanks, Corlin. Can you let us know where we can go to find your podcast, Founder Path, and anything else that you're working on? Yeah. So, and if you want to chat with me, Twitter's great at Nathan Latka. That's L A T K A on the end. And then again, if you're curious uh, how much money you could get and what it would cost you, just go to founderpath.com. You don't have to put in your email. There's just scroll down to the second section. There's a calculator, Cortland and I were using. Just type in how much you want and see how much you can get. I'd love to work with you. All right. Thanks again, Nathan. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode and you want an easy way to support the podcast, you should leave a review for us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Probably the fastest way to get there if you're on a Mac is to visit ndhackers.com slash reviews. I really appreciate your support and I read pretty much all the reviews you leave over there. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, I will see you next time. <laughs>